0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ, but Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. We mentioned last time how the Christian life is a marathon, how the Apostle Paul. Is one even at the end of life, says, I've run my race. Understanding that the Christian life, even though Paul was a Pharisee, a murderer, somebody who stood over the death of Stephen, celebrating uh, his death, seeing him as one who is a troubler of Israel. This same man who runs his race, runs it in the confidence of Christ Jesus. People of Hebrews, even we ourselves, can sometimes wonder what the purpose of life is, why we struggle, why we get up, why we continue to press forward. We may wonder, what is our purpose and, and why are we here? Hebrews 11 is giving the assurance that there are people in very dark circumstances who no doubt would have been tempted to give up give in, take the easy way out. But by the grace of God, we have this catalog that those who do not even have the privilege of worshiping so freely as we do still have their focus with a laser-pointedness unto their heavenly rest, unto their Redeemer, unto their Savior, by the grace of God. And so when we consider this dark history, if you will, of Israel. Not to say that God is a God of darkness, but one of the reasons of singing Psalm 23, singing about and the Lord leading us to the valley of the shadow of death. Thinking about the consistency of God as we once again humble ourselves and think about this historic precedent with these saints. And so what is a fundamental promise that is held out for these saints Where do they orient their lives? What is this fundamentally teaching us about the Christian walk and the Christian life? And so as we consider this, we'll see first, Moses' alignment, Moses' leading, and lastly, Moses' legacy. So you can see how Hebrews is dividing this. We have the patriarchs. We're going now to Moses and Israel going into the land. And so we're going from the dark time of slavery Uh, to victory, if you will. And so in terms of Moses' alignment in verse 21, we think about who this this man is and and what he has done. Um, Or actually beginning in verse 23, excuse me. Seeing how Moses is aligned with the purpose of God. then we know that that the Lord is the one who is working through this man. So we have to think back to the context in Hebrews 11. The context is verses 1 through 3. Remember, we said that it's by the word of God that we see the the visible uh, manifestation of it. So the invisible is manifested by the fruits. So the invisible God who calls out creates this creation. So, so often when we talk about the catalog of saints, we're, we're sort of looking at this from a perspective of elevating these individuals, and now obviously... Uh, by God's grace, they, they've done some remarkable things, so I don't want to deprecate that. But we have to get at the point of what Hebrews is addressing. We're dealing with a church that is saying, we don't know what to do with Christ. We, we don't know if persecution's worthwhile. Uh, we don't know if it's worth dying. We don't know if it's worth imprisonment, which seems to be the implication as we go on uh, in Hebrews that this church is facing persecution. And so it's really wrestling with, is this God real? How do I know this God's real? How do I know that this God is really going to fulfill his promise and his purpose as I order my life in light of his covenantal promises? Do I know that this is really worth it? Well, remember Hebrews eleven six: without faith it's impossible to please God. So this means that as we're living the Christian life, we begin in the confidence of we, we are in Christ Jesus. He is our Redeemer. And, and we want to order our lives in terms of who we are in Christ. Now, As we know, these men, as we'll go through these men in, in, again in, in more detail with Moses and those who have gone before. These men are, are not those who have lived impeccable lives. But yet the, the force of Hebrews 11 is what is the overall trajectory? What, what, what do we see overall? So we think of the story of Moses. In the very beginning of Moses and where he was born, he was hidden by his parents. And so when they hide him, it tells us they, they were not afraid of the king's edict. So now we put ourselves in, in, in the shoes of an Israelite who would think back to this history. What, what was the king's edict? Well, the king's edict was the people of Israel are getting too big. And so he's going to do sort of a controlled genocide. And it's it's sort of a a brilliant, if you're going to be depraved in terms of um, marveling just pure psychopathy and, and depravity, if you're going to try and cover your tracks, it's a great way to do it. Because you kill all the male children, which is what his edict was. Now, if you want to sort of sweep the genocide away, you take the women, you incorporate them into Egypt, and you say, what genocide? I didn't kill anyone. There's no genocide here. And so you can see how the king making this edict is going to take care of the problem of the Israelite slaves and sort of you have the strategy of how to cover your tracks so historically you still look like a pretty good guy. And so you you have that edict that the midwives are to basically uh, take a, a male child and execute the male child when the child is born. I mean, a rather uh, disgusting, heinous, depraved, immoral uh, ruling that comes down. We have Moses' parents. When you have a king that is that ruthless, willing to kill infant children, his parents say, we're going to take this child and hide him away. And so you have this, this conspiracy that, that they're doing this for a particular purpose. Because what, what does Pharaoh say? That the whole purpose behind his edict is our enemies. Is that these, our enemies are getting too great and they will rise up and they'll fight against us and take the land. That's his fear. So his whole thing is their God is weak. We know their God is weak because I still enslave his people. And so again, it's, it's man defining God, taking God, putting God in a box and, and not understanding The purpose that might be behind God. The celebration of how God brings life from death. How the Lord shows his strength and weakness. These sorts of themes that come out in the Exodus. Song of Mary. uh, Where you have that echo back to the Song of Moses. So Pharaoh in his arrogance thinks, Oh, I'll be able to to basically keep this this, this nation from getting free. And I will constrain their God. and, And I will do what I do in my wisdom. We have then this this language in the text that they notice that Moses was beautiful. Now, this is a a word in in the original language that can mean beauty in the sense that you just admire someone for being beautiful. You you can admire a beautiful piece of art. It it, it can have that language. Uh, And so there's some that say maybe Moses was such a beautiful child that his parents were taken in by the beauty of this child. Well, when when you look at that, you kind of realize uh, that no mother has had an ugly child. I mean, if we're honest, I'm not saying there's never been an ugly baby. I'm just saying no mother has had an ugly child. In fact, Edmund Clowney uh, counseled us in our class where he said, if there's a new baby, uh, you don't start by saying, isn't that a cute baby? You say, isn't that a baby? Uh, Because he said he had it once where he pulled back the cradle and he went, whoa. And he said that wasn't a good reaction. But yet the mother didn't think the child was ugly. So I don't don't think the point is that his parents looked upon his child and thought he was beautiful. Every mother looks upon her child and says his child's beautiful. And that's appropriate. That's good. That's that's what we're supposed to do. So there's nothing wrong with that. But we're missing the point of the text. We're, We're missing the point of this catalog. Because what Hebrews wants us to understand is that there's another meaning to this beauty. Uh, when you look at the Greek translation, the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, is used in the sense of the priestly order uh, defining what is good and as beautiful. And so it's the same word that's used. Basically, it's a moral judgment uh, that you're, you're looking at something, you're saying this is beautiful. And so beautiful is doing what is pleasing and honorable unto God. And so that seems to be more in in the sense of how his parents are doing this. They're saying there's something about this child that, that, that the Lord is going to utilize. And so think about this mindset. You're enslaved. A king is sending out an edict to murder infant boys. And yet you say, the Lord's still at work here. I mean, if there's ever a time in your life to think, where is God? That's the time. And what do his parents say by the grace of God? God is at work even in the midst of this time. So the author of Hebrews is intending for us to think about moral judgments as beautiful, good, this is pleasing unto God. So they hide him away. And you think, well, maybe, maybe this isn't a, a good thing. But what's sort of interesting is that we have Moses, that he's one who grows up and he refuses to be called a son of Pharaoh. Uh, and so being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter would imply that Moses could be a rightful heir to the throne. Uh, we, we have to understand the nature of adoption uh, in, in terms of, of this age and this time. You know, Moses or Abraham with Eleazar of Damascus, I'll adopt him as my heir. He can continue the covenant line. You're off the hook. I'm off the hook, right? Genesis 15. And so when a child is adopted as an heir, it means that the child can be the rightful successor to the father. So Moses, refusing to being called a son of Pharaoh, basically is what this is getting at, even though a son of Pharaoh's daughter. But by refusing to be called the status Moses is saying, I'm not going to use my ability to have a comfortable life in Egypt. And so the author of Hebrews isn't going through uh, Moses' murder. He's not going through Moses hiding in the wilderness. He doesn't go through that. He's saying, what's the fundamental drive of Moses? Why is Moses so upset at what's happening to, to his people? Because he values the promises of God. Now, I say it's, it's interesting or significant that he's referred to as Moses. Because you see, Moses' daughter, when she finds this baby in the stream, if you remember the story, uh, Moses' mother is, hides the baby, puts the baby in a basket. Uh, Moses' aunt hides in the corner, basically, behind a bush, and knows that Pharaoh's daughter is going to bathe in this, basically, in, in the river. And so, where Moses' daughter, or where Pharaoh's daughter bathes in the river, uh, she finds this baby, hears the baby crying, has compassion on the baby, which is interesting and significant because even the pagans see the ruling of Pharaoh as being harsh. She could drown the baby right there realizing it's a Hebrew baby, right? I mean, she could do that and, and that would be following her father's orders, but she doesn't. Even the pagan sees the harshness of this decree, picks this baby up out of the water and names him Moses. Why is that? Because in her declaration of what she has done, she drew him up out of the water. So in her estimation, I have saved this baby. In other words, for Pharaoh's daughter, she becomes the one who is in the place of their God. Their God who is so weak, who is not able to save his people, right? This is sort of the theme that's coming out here, that God's weak, she's strong, Egypt's a mighty superpower. Now this name Moses obviously is going to be played on in the Exodus narrative recalled here. Because the narrative goes on. Notice what drives, what drives Moses. She's not the one who saves him, Exodus 2 verse 10. But it's Moses who's not just looking to Yahweh, right? Notice what the text tells us. It's not Yahweh, not the... The Hebrew covenantal name for God, which would be appropriate. The God of the Exodus, the God who revealed himself in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. I am Yahweh, which means I exist, I, I, I am, just continue to be, is what the name means. That's not the name. But he looks to Christ. So the author of Hebrews is recalling for us Hebrews 9, isn't he? He's saying, listen, we can say that this this whole Christ promise and this newfangled religion that these apostles expect us to believe, it's hogwash. Where is that? The author of Hebrews is saying, newfangled religion? Hogwash? Really? What did we just talk about in Hebrews 9? Who was Moses looking to? The same I am. But he's looking to the I am who is manifested in Christ Jesus, the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ is who he looks to. So he's driving home the reality. Moses is not looking to a different God than we look to. It is not a different God at work in Moses and Abraham than is at work in us. We serve the same God. So Moses is the one who continues to order his life. He's the one who goes to Egypt. He's the one who uh, sprinkles the blood on, on the blood post. Now think about this as well. Put yourself in the shoes of an Egyptian when this command goes forward. You've been enslaved 400 years. Cried out to God for generations. Now all of a sudden this guy who was adopted into Pharaoh's household murders a he- uh, an Egyptian flees into the wilderness, comes back, and he tells you, oh, by the way, there's going to be this exodus, and this destroyer is going to come into the land, and you've got to sprinkle blood on the doorpost. You know, we, we romanticize the story because we see the conclusion. But can you imagine yourself as an Israelite? That the moment you do that, and if this does not come to pass, what do you think Pharaoh is going to do to you? What do you think the consequence will be if this does not come to pass? You're going to have a miserable life. And so when when the author of Hebrews lays out Moses sprinkling the blood in the doorpost, the Israelites sprinkling the blood in the doorpost, this is not something that is an easy task. They are publicly identifying themselves as people of the Lord. And they're saying, we are confident that our Lord will deliver us. And we believe that tonight, the angel of death, the destroyer, arguably the angel of the Lord, is going to strike down the firstborn of Pharaoh's household and the Egyptians. And he's going to lead us out of here. Can you imagine what this is like as an Israelite? The turmoil. But yet the author of Hebrews reminds us, what did they do? They followed it. They were confident, they believed the word of God, and they ordered their life in light of it, no matter what the consequence might be. And so right here, we, we have the history of very dark time in Israel's history. And yet we have Israel saying, the Lord is working in the midst of us. A reminder, Moses looks to the same Christ. Don't fall away. Don't turn away and think there's something... Uh, deviant or or, or wrong in what we have. We worship the same Christ. Going on then briefly, looking at verses uh, 27 uh, through 29. We have this this issue then, what what happens with Moses? Well, we have the people that they cross the Red Sea. They do so in dry land. Egyptians try, they're swallowed in in the sea. Now we think, Yeah, of course, that's what happened. We don't put ourselves in the story. Because when Moses comes to the sea, he's got the Israelites who want to kill him. They say, oh, there's not enough graves back in Egypt. And so you bring us out here to die so we can be buried in the wilderness? Thanks a lot, Moses. I mean, come on, you just put blood in your doorpost. The firstborn of the Egyptians have been killed. You're sent out of Egypt. You don't think there's a solution here? You have the Egyptian army pushing up against him, and Moses is between his own people who want to kill him and the Egyptians who want to kill him. I mean, you talk about a rock in a hard place. This guy is in a bad predicament. Praise to the Lord. <laughs> and it's kind of funny when you read it, because you think about this scenario. My people want to kill me. The Egyptians want to kill me. Who else is going to want to kill me today, right? He comes before the Lord and says, why are you crying out to me? You kind of go, well, who else is supposed to cry out to, you know? The guy's in a rock and a hard place, no matter what, he's facing death. The Lord rebukes him, so he's saying, really? I bring you through all this, and you don't think I can get you out of this predicament. So it's not that the Lord's mad that Moses cries out to him. But he's mad that Moses is one who is not in the full confidence, that the Lord's redeeming mercy, is manifested. And so the Lord tells him to do something that seems almost absurd. Moses, walk up to the sea and raise your staff. You know, we, we romanticize that, but, but do you understand how absurd that is? Because you'd want to say to God, well, could you send an army of angels, you know, spare a couple, take out the Egyptians in front of us? That'd be really cool and easy for us to believe. Uh, could you teleport us across the sea? No, the Lord says, raise your staff. I will part the sea. And so again, this is a stepping out in a confidence that the word of Lord, the Word of the Lord is sure and pure. Moses raises a staff. Sure enough, the sea parts in two, and the Lord's people walk across on dry land. And so you understand, my goodness. Here we see Moses once again in this predicament. The Lord is the one who delivers him. Now you have this water ordeal where the Lord is clearly distinguishing his people remember uh, Pharaoh's daughter Moses I drew him up I saved him I'm the one who's a redeemer Lord's saying no you're not you're a means I've used to the end you're, you're, you're a means that has shown compassion but you're not the redeemer of Israel and what the Lord is teaching here and what Hebrews wants us to understand God is a redeemer of his people And so Israel, when you think of the true name, I have wrestled, I have prevailed. When the Lord brings his people through the sea, it is truly that picture of going through hell, going through death, and emerging triumphant. Because when Moses cries out to God, you have the pillars on either side, pictured as Israel walking between the legs of God as the ultimate warrior, as a shield and defender, and delivering them through the sea. So the author of Hebrews wants us to understand who these individuals are. It's not so much that they in and of themselves are so significant, but you see how the Lord has upheld them, and how even they were scared in these times of trial, but what did they do? They called out to God, and as they called out to God, he is the deliverer. It is the assurance that the Lord is the ultimate deliverer of his people. That's what the Lord wants us to understand. The invisible is manifested in the visible deliverance. But We go on. We consider now the legacy of Moses. So Moses has died. He's died outside the land. We move on now to the successor of Joshua. And we have this promise that was made to Abraham as we heard last time that he would inherit a land, but he never attained the land. He was looking to the heavenly land. And so, in order for the Lord to truly be God, he has to bring Israel into Canaan. If if that doesn't happen, then there's no reason for us to have confidence of God. But the Lord knows us, doesn't he? And he knows who we are, We're a lot like Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, I raised him up. I delivered him. Look at what my hands have done, right? This is who we are. And the Lord has to bring us to a place as he did in the Exodus, as he does in the sea, as he did with Abraham and Sarah, to a place where we see our own death, our inability, and see the life that comes and the power that is there by God's redeeming grace and mercy. And so now, we we go into the land. We skip over the crossing of the Jordan. But the author of Hebrews recalls for us another dark time in Israel's history. And, and we don't always think of this as a dark time. Because we have the time where Joshua, as we find in Joshua chapter one, he secretly sends spies into the land. Right here. When, when, when you hear this in the text and you're familiar with the Exodus story, you go to Joshua 1 verse 9, he secretly sends spies into the land. You go, Joshua, you were part of this. You, you were there. You heard the rebellion. You wandered with, with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we're going to repeat this? Sending spies into the land? This is not commissioned by God. This is why Joshua most likely meets that mysterious warrior who's the angel of the Lord to call to Joshua's attention. It's not Joshua's strategy, and it's not Joshua's war. It's the Lord's, and Joshua needs to be reoriented to this. But nevertheless, we, we trace these spies going into the land, and as they go into the land, they come to the house of a harlot. And, and, and you read this in Joshua. And you'd say, My goodness, this is not good. This is not what we've seen the people of God doing that's well. We think of Judah and, and, and what happened there. These are not good things. And then you think, Well, this is a woman of opportunity, right? A, a woman who's not principled. And so you recall the king coming to her and saying, Hey, there's been Israelites spying out the land. Rumor is they stopped in here. You know anything about this? Now think about the temptation here. You're an individual of opportunity. You, you don't, you're not expected to have principles. You could turn on those spies and you could say, yeah. And or say to the king, you know, so what's in it for me? What what sort of benefits do I get if I report this, right? She might have a great promotion in the kingdom. Who knows what opportunities? Maybe she could be a queen. There, there might be all sorts of th- things that King could lay on the table for her as an opportunity. Now, as an opportunist, she's not going to think much beyond tomorrow, right? I mean, right now, here and now, this is where we make the deal and close the deal. This is where we, we bargain, and then she can hand the spies over. She herself, ironically, as you have sort of this play in the Hebrews, where he's sort of jabbing the people of God, isn't he? Saying, isn't this what Israel did? Always played the harlot, read Hosea, going and pursuing the false gods, not being people of principle, always tuned in to the Lord's purpose, always pursuing the harlot as we see with the spies. And who's the one that shows principle? The harlot, who's supposed to be the sellout, looks beyond the immediate opportunity and negotiation and looks to the God of heaven. And realizes that reality is going to hit home. No matter how fortified the walls are of this city. No matter how protected she may feel by the king. There is a king that transcends them all. And this God is a God who will be victorious. And so she lies. And she hides the spies. So right here when we consider this narrative. We understand the warning that the author of Hebrews has given. He's given a warning in Hebrews 3 and 4 about the wilderness generation testing the Lord. Here we find the spies once again going into the land, setting the stage for what Israel's going to do. Pursue the false gods, pursue the false ways as he'll pick up again uh, with Esau and what he does. But The ultimate reality is who are the true ones that are vindicated? Not the ones who who work in their own strength. Not the ones who rest in themselves. Pharaoh's daughter rested in herself. She was one who saved this baby, drew him up. But it's an understanding of the invisible God who is operating and working even when it seems that all is lost. There, There is no hope. We're in a place of hopelessness, enslavement, in a foreign land by a superpower. We're pinned between a superpower and a sea. God can't get us out of this. We're facing a city whose walls are impenetrable, but yet we find that by the command of God, as they simply march around the walls, the city falls, and Israel secures the land of God. This is a reminder that it's not so much about the heroes of the faith, It's not so much a a reminder of what they have done in their own strength. It's a reminder of how God uses people. And if we ask ourselves, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Why do I exist? The only way we're going to find contentment and meaning in life is if it starts with the wisdom of God. It starts with faith, confidence that the Word of God is real confidence that Christ is really a redeemer. Having a value system that is consistent with the plan of God and not the value system of this age. Of understanding that no matter what we see with the eyes of this age, we need to see beyond it with the eyes of faith. And so the author of Hebrews and we say, well, what is this fundamental promise that's set out? The fundamental promise that's called to our attention is the Lord is faithful to his redemptive promise, So when our Lord leaves, goes to heaven, Hebrews has told us why he's done that. Because he's in the most holy place where he's been sacrificed by his father. He has cleansed the heavenly tabernacle so we as struggling sinners can draw near. What is our temptation? Oh, he doesn't want to hear from us. What does he tell us in chapter 4? What have we heard of this Christ that Moses looked to? He's a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We draw near to the throne of grace. We want to run away. We want to rest in ourselves. We, we, we want to trust in anything other than Him. But the author of Hebrews is saying, What has God shown? When we take the, the history of the covenant, what has God shown? That against all hope, the Lord is always victorious. Against all circumstances, The Lord is always victorious. And so the call for us is to have the confidence that our Lord is a gracious and merciful God. These saints, they had their failings, they had their struggles. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see the overall trajectory. And the call and exhortation for us is to continually take hold of Christ by faith. Where we struggle, where we flounder, Where we lose our way. What does he prescribe for us? Start by drawing near to the throne of grace. The heavenly God. The heavenly uh, Melchizedekian priest. The same Christ to whom Moses looked to. Is your redeemer. Believe that he lives. Believe that you have passed through something greater than the Red Sea. That as Christ is seated in the heavenly places. You have passed through the ordeal of hell. In Christ Jesus, you have been moved to life. And so remember then, that when the Lord rebukes Moses for crying out to him, it's not because Moses prayed. That's not why the Lord rebukes him. It's because he's crying out. He's in a place of desperation, almost like, well, I guess we'll just try what God has to do. And the Lord's saying, no, Moses. Trust me. Pray to me. I am leading you. I am the shepherd of my people. Let us live in a confidence then that as our good shepherd has conquered superpowers, as our good shepherd has conquered the saints throughout the ages, as our good shepherd is conquering us and chipping away the hardness in our own hearts, may we desire his work to be done. May we desire to conform to his will. May we continue to be lesser. May we see him as greater. May we not put our God in in a box, but may we understand that the good shepherd continues to lead. Let that be our confidence as we sojourn under the sun. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.